Hey everyone, I am excited to announce that Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed, is now available on Amazon as a side study, Volume H, in the Gospel Feast series. The book of Esther is a mysterious one. As written, it is a book with many contradictions. The name Esther means something hidden. It does contain several historical conundrums and a handful of mysteries. It is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God at all. Why? Many Jews today say that it is just fiction, because they can't find any of the characters mentioned within, historically. And yet, they celebrate the book with a major festival, annually. It is also one of the books that is required reading in the weeks before Passover, every year. Not by God, but by Esther herself. Why do this if you insist the book is just fiction? It is one of the only books that Joseph Smith made no corrections to, although he considered it to be historical. How is any of this possible? Esther reads as an eyewitness account, but then struggles with the simple, logical issues and frequently contradicts itself in some very strange ways. How come? Considering that Esther became the most powerful queen of the world's largest empire, none of this makes any sense. Or does it? Despite the wonderful story, we are left with the puzzling questions. Who was King Ahasuerus? Who was Mordecai? Who was Haman? And actually, who was Esther? The answers may just surprise you. The book is not fiction. And in fact, all of the puzzling contradictions were put in place for a very devious reason, and not by Esther. Join us on this astounding historical reconstruction and be amazed at what Esther really tried to do, and how, had she been able to accomplish what she had tried, your life would be very different right now. You think you know the book of Esther? Are you sure? Let's feast on the Word of God together and see what a woman of God can do when she really puts her mind to it. It also might make an incredible Mother's Day gift for the ladies in your life. Happy Mother's Day. This is the Gospel Feast series for those who want a little meat after their milk. It's time to feast on the Word. Welcome back. We're continuing our discussion of the book of Daniel. We have seen that the two visions, first the vision King Nebuchadnezzar had, and then the great dream of the four beasts that Daniel had, both received the same interpretation. Now, we have seen and discussed the first three parts of these visions, and we'd like to pick up from there if we could. Yeah, let's get into it. We are at the legs of iron and feet of clay. This is the last part of the idol that Nebuchadnezzar saw when he saw that idol of four metals. These are these strong iron legs that strangely end in feet that are partially strong, being they're partially iron, but they're partially weak, being partially clay. And iron and clay don't mix well together. So this was really strange. And particularly to have this big, heavy, metallic idol with such a bad foundation to stand on is extremely interesting. And it's something that, of course, Nebuchadnezzar realized when that great rock that was cut without hands from the mountain came flying at the statue and it hit it at these feet. And because it had no foundation, the whole thing fell down. 
We've learned already that each of the metal parts of this body, this metal idol that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream, corresponds to a beast that Daniel saw in his later dream. And so in this particular case, the next beast on the horizon with the death of Alexander is that terrible dinosaur dragon creature that was really frightening, and it had these ten horns. Why that's so interesting is there are ten toes on Nebuchadnezzar's idol, and there are ten horns on the beast. That's right. Okay. We left Alexander and his abs of brass dead in Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. Most people don't realize Alexander actually died in Babylon. So Babylon does become a very important city, and it's still a focus of so much. Mm. Alexander's death is actually foretold by Daniel. And we know that when Alexander was brought into Jerusalem and shown the book of Daniel, how excited he was, they probably only showed him the part where the great he-goat, Alexander, destroyed the ram, which in this case would have been Persia. But I rather suspect they left out this part, Daniel 8, 8, and 9. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And from it came up four noble ones toward the four winds of heaven, Now remember that the leopard, who was Alexander, had four heads. Here again, four heads, four winds of heaven. In terms of wind, that's going to be the four directions. And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceedingly great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. This is a very specific prophecy, and it came to pass to the letter. Oh, wow. As before mentioned, Alexander died at the height of his power, and his four generals divided up his empire. This next event can be a little confusing until you remember God's master plan, which is this. All of God's biblical prophecies center around his plan to save the human race from sin and death through the medium of the Messiah, who was to be a son of Israel. Restated, all of these prophecies must be viewed through the lens of Israel and how God intends to keep his covenant with Jacob, who is Israel first, and then with all those who are willing to be adopted into the house of Israel. From the kingdom of Greece, a fourth kingdom did rise, which envied and tried to emulate and finally did usurp Greece. At first they started small, but soon they became exceedingly great, and by conquering the lands to their south and east, and by taking over the pleasant, holy land of Israel, they became extremely powerful. You know this empire. They called themselves Rome. Ah, yes, Rome. While we've seen many different empires uh, come before it, you know, there's nothing that's had the staying power as the Roman Empire. Why do you think that is? It's important to understand that in terms of prophecy and in terms of real history, Rome came out of Greece. Rome first came to the attention of the Jewish people when it was conquered by Macedonia in about 168 BCE, which we say means before the Christian era on this show. Yes. Rome was so inspired by the Greek ideal that it usurped much of the culture. It took the Greek gods, it took Greek architecture, and even their muscled breastplate for its soldiers. A few years after claiming Alexander's homeland, Rome made a pact with the Jewish Maccabees, who were the rulers in Jerusalem at the time. It was known as the Jewish League. So we see that Rome did have its incarnation through one of the horns of Alexander, just as Daniel said. Thus the prophecy is perfect in regards to Israel's perspective. Rome grew out of Greece. We have maintained for us the Jewish League, as it's called, the deal that Rome made with the Maccabees, who were the rulers at the time of Israel. This is what it says. May all go well with the Romans and with the nation of the Jews at sea and on land forever. And may sword and enemy be far from them. 
If war comes first to Rome or to any of their allies in all their dominion, the nation of the Jews shall act as their allies wholeheartedly. In the same way, if war comes first to the nation of the Jews, the Romans shall willingly act as their allies and do so without deceit. Thus on these terms the Romans make a treaty with the Jewish people. If after these terms are in effect, both parties shall determine to add or delete anything, they shall do so at their discretion, and any addition or deletion that they may make shall be valid. This little horn would grow in power until it became the crowning horn on the head of the fourth beast, just as Daniel saw. Its history is perfectly summarized in the next verses of Daniel. Daniel 8.10 And it waxed great, even to the hosts of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and trampled upon them. Wait, what does that mean, Rome trampled on the hosts of heaven? Rome did destroy the host of heaven. During its long career, it persecuted Jewish priests and prophets and Christian apostles and saints, making martyrs of the very elect of God. It crushed the very sons of the morning who sang with God when the earth was made. Hear this one in 11. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Rome was even so bold as to bring down the prince of the morning sons himself, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. Oh, that's right. So even though it was the Jews that had condemned and rejected Jesus, it was actually Romans that executed him. Rome removed the temple, leaving not one stone upon another, ending its daily use as a home of worship and sacrifice. To this day, there is no temple on Solomon's Mount, while impostors and Gentiles parade themselves before the covenant people who are still forced to worship in shame and mourning beneath the very hill of their forefathers. Listen to verse 12. And an host was given unto him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. This verse is often deeply misunderstood by a lot of people. We're going to have to come back to this term daily, but what's important to know is that this also was done by Rome. Nebuchadnezzar's metallic man had two iron legs, and we will see that Rome had two powerful incarnations. Likewise, Daniel's iron dragon had many horns and many facets. To replace the daily temple sacrifice, Rome's second incarnation did give the world a new host, as it is still called today. We will explore how, in all of this, Rome actually did grind the truth to the ground, practice its ways, and did prosper mightily, just as Daniel said. This is one of the most misunderstood verses in all of Daniel. Because it points to the second incarnation of Rome, or specifically the feet, which are mixed with iron and clay, there are religions today that have worked greatly to reinterpret what this daily means. But they're incorrect. We're going to tell you what it really means. Daniel pondered on all of this, but was still not satisfied. It was one thing to see his people in captivity, but it was a more terrible thing to know that such a beast would kill God's elect, particularly Messiah the Prince. Now, lucky for us, Daniel wanted more information on this dragon with iron legs and jaws. And so, our Lord, who's consistent in his ways, remember Amos, answered Daniel again with the meaning the very same evening. Ah. Let's go on now with Daniel 8, 23-25. Listen to these verses, and we'll put it all together. And in the latter time of Greece's kingdom, when the transgressor shall come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully, and shall prosper, and practice, and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy also, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. And he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. 
He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. Mm. From this additional vision, Daniel learned that the dragon of iron would speak in a dark language, one that the Jews would not understand. The Jews did understand Chaldean, Persian, and Greek, particularly at the time of Christ. While the Jews spoke Hebrew in the home, at school, and in the synagogue, they did business in the world languages of Aramaic and Greek. They had also incorporated many Chaldean words and customs into their culture from their 70 years in Babylon. But here a new dark language was coming upon them. It is Latin, and it would be entirely different. Also much of the political manipulations in Rome came from their political speeches, closed-door meetings, clever alliances, political lawyering, and tricky contracts, such as the Jewish League, to gain an upper hand on the people. The Jews believed Rome would be their eternal ally. After all, we read the Jewish League, they signed with them. But what they didn't notice was the clause at the end, which we did read. Listen to it again. If after these terms are in effect, both parties shall determine to add or delete anything, they shall do so at their discretion. Oh boy. And any addition or deletion that they may make shall be valid. My, that is a dangerous clause to have in that contract. So what I'm hearing is, is that Rome could at any time change the rules, could change the agreement, could make new stipulations that they wanted. Thinking about it in our terms, if any of us were to sign a contract that was that open-ended, that the other party could at a whim suddenly demand more money or could say that you were in violation and change the rules, they could in an instant alter things and then take you to court or, or even get you in trouble criminally. I mean, that's a dangerous clause to have agreed to. The Jews are much better at making contracts today. <laughs> they do learn. We love the Jews. They do learn. But this was a stupid league to make. That last clause was a dumb thing to agree to. Rome, like many modern seats of power, had a way of justifying what it wanted until it could take it legally. The Roman beast would destroy many not by war, but through peace. There were many nations that simply surrendered to Roman rule the moment Rome told them that they were taking over. It was a unique time in world history. It was called the Pax Romana, which means the Roman peace. That's right. Daniel was also told that the Prince of Hosts, before mentioned, was also called the Prince of Princes. A lot of people don't understand this term, Lord of Hosts and Prince of Hosts. It does refer to angels, but it also refers to the planets. The Lord uses the word Lord of Sabaoth, and people will read it and they think it says Lord of Sabbath. But if you stop and look, sometimes he's the Lord of Sabbath, and sometimes he's the Lord of Sabaoth. When he is the Lord of Sabaoth, he is claiming direct lordship over the planets. But it's important to understand this because it becomes huge as you study Genesis and you study creation and you start to look at what some of the prophets are saying. They talk about the planets a lot more than people are prepared to understand, but it's in there. We'll address it in its turn. Of course, we know that the Prince of Princes, the Lord of Hosts, and the Prince of Hosts, and the Prince of Peace was none other than Jesus Christ. Imperial Rome would be broken in God's own time, but not completely destroyed. It would have an amazing transformation into Papal Rome. Now, I want to pause a moment and express my personal affection for Catholicism. I have, many times in my life, been treated very well and with a lot of great Christian kindness by Catholic people. I can't say that about some secular religion sects. Some of them have been rather cruel to me. But the Catholics have never been so. I also do not believe that the current Catholic Church should be held guilty for the outrages of the ancient and medieval incarnations. 
although they do have some of their own problems today, I can say without hesitation that I've never been mistreated by a Catholic, never in my life. Now, it's true that Protestant faiths and Eastern Orthodox congregations can be vehement in their hatred of Roman Catholicism, or Romanism as they call it, and they have some argument there looking over history, and also their entire claim on Jesus Christ rests in their justification for divorcing themselves from the Catholic body of Christ. History has proven their claims to be valid. Despite the fact that I have no ill will for the Catholic children of God, we cannot lie in the terms of history, and we cannot pretend to interpret Daniel incorrectly. That would be an affront to Scripture and an affront to Daniel and the Word of God. So we have to move forward. History is clear on this point. Imperial Rome, with its litany of gods, senatorial governing body, an emperor morphed into the Catholic litany of saints, Roman curia, and pope. Historically, it's true that our Catholic friends celebrate the taking over of imperial Rome by papal Rome and the creation of the Holy Roman Empire, but this was foretold by Daniel too. The rest of the Christian world sees the fascinating symbolism of the two legs of iron being the two incarnations of Rome. They also see the arrogant horn on the head of the iron beast as being the Pope professing to speak ex cathedra. Ex cathedra in Catholic doctrine means that what the Pope says is the binding word of God. Ah, That's quite a statement to make. It's one thing to be a prophet like Daniel was and be humble and speak for God or to approach God, get an answer, and then come and say, this is what the Lord said to me. It's another thing to say, what I am telling you now comes straight from the mouth of God himself. Oh, wow. That's pretty arrogant. Anyway, Papal Rome was able to maintain control over the former imperial empire as it fractured, like the feet of iron mixed with clay which Nebuchadnezzar saw as the final kingdom of the metallic man. Rome's fractured empire was a mixture of strong and weak, rich and poor, and diverse nations held together by their common Catholic religion. At least at first... While scholars debate the specifics, it is fair to make the following list of ten nations that came from this. Austria, Belgium, England, France, Germany, Greece, Holland, Italy, Portugal, and Spain. If you don't want to use these terms, it's also fair to use the white tribes. It's kind of funny and a slight diversion, but we think of tribes today and we think of the Native American tribes. But there were ten European or white tribes that came out of this. The Amani, the Celts, the Franks, the Goths, the Huns, the Heruli, the Ostrogoths, the Romans, the Saxons, and the Teutons. So there you go. Ah. Speaking of Papal Rome and arrogance, one of the things that's really important to understand is the donation of Constantine. Papal Rome would be as tricky as Imperial Rome had been in controlling its masses. When the Pope couldn't use the fear of hellfire in the afterlife to force people to obey him, He, like Caesar, used old, used murder or political wrangling. One of the most infamous will serve as an example for many. It was known as the Donation of Constantine, and it was as satanic in its deception as ever Rome's Jewish League had been. Here are the historical facts. It has been called the most important forgery in human history for its profound effect upon the world. In 754 AD, Pope Stephen II wanted to appoint a Frankish mayor, Pepin the Short, as King of France. Pepin had agreed to give the Pope the lands in Italy, which the Lombards had taken from the Byzantine Empire in exchange for being appointed King of France. The trouble was, France already had a king. His name was Childeric III. He was a Merovingian. His family had ruled France for 300 years. Pope Stephen II claimed that he had the right to appoint kings in Europe because by legal contract, 
all the lands belonged to him already. He produced a deed for the planet Earth, signed by Roman Emperor Constantine, dated nearly 500 years previous to this moment. Childeric was dethroned, and his long hair, which was an ancient symbol of his dynasty and thus his royal right to rule, was cut off, and that was seen as divesting him of all his kingly power. Once dethroned, he and his son Thuderic were placed in a monastery where they were controlled by the church. The Roman church would further honor Pepin when the pope made his son Charlemagne Holy Roman Emperor, or the strong arm of the Vatican. We now know that this ancient deed was a complete lie, most likely written around the same time at Corby Abbey in northern France. There is actually no evidence that Constantine, the first Christian emperor, ever attended a Christian church. He was baptized on his deathbed in 337 AD, so we are told. This fake deed further stated that the emperor was moving his capital to Constantinople from Rome for the express purpose of giving the popes, the city of Rome, and all the provinces, districts, and cities of Italy, and of the western regions, until the end of time. Oh, wow. It also granted the pope jurisdiction over territories that he did not rule, stating he had supremacy greater than the earthly clemency of our imperial serenity. In other words, he held the deed to the entire planet. Ah. Why anyone believed that a legal document from a defunct world empire would have any force boggles the mind. But the history stands. Catholic fathers made the most of their strict control over literacy, biblical and otherwise, by controlling history. That seems to be a common tactic, even in uh, recent history, We've seen examples of uh, kings, dictators that have altered the past or rewritten it or mandated that a certain history be taught to fit their current narrative. Uh, One that comes to mind immediately is um, Hitler's Nazi Germany had rewritten their entire origin story uh, to fit that new narrative that gave them uh, arrogant authority to look down on other people. From my experience, any time I've ever seen uh, revisionist history has always led to unpleasant outcomes. We see this today. If you can control history, you can control what the past means, and therefore you believe you can control the future. We're watching it right now as people are tearing down monuments and doing all kinds of destruction, trying to control history. In fact, we now know that more than 60% of the documents stemming from Charlemagne's predecessors are forgeries. Egged on by the success with their donation of Constantine, monks faked all kinds of documents, from backdated tax exemptions and land grants to authorization papers about wood from the real Noah's Ark and feathers from the wings of Angel Gabriel, believe it or not. They also took liberties with the Holy Bible, changing the text to suit their needs. It is no wonder that Europe's kings and princes were eager to break the power of the Pope. Brave priests like Martin Luther and John Calvin and wise rulers like Henry VIII and Prince Frederick the Wise broke from Catholicism. Their actions ultimately led to the American constitutional freedom to worship without political enforcement, the model for our separation of church and state around the free nations of the world. In all fairness, there were many, including the poet Dante, who doubted that the donation of Constantine was correct. But it was dangerous to say so at the time. Some who dared to publicly question it were burned alive at the stake. Others, like William the Conqueror, refused to acknowledge it when later popes produced it as proof of ownership of all England. 
By 1517 AD, it was proven to be a forgery when scholar Lorenzo Valla established the document's Latin to be 9th century and therefore not written by Constantine. The Vatican responded by placing Valla's proof on the index of forbidden books that could not be read. Today they admit it was a forgery, but remind us all that it is unimportant since their claim to the planet comes from Jesus Christ himself, they say. Again, an arrogant claim for a horn so small as the Vatican today. Rome's papal incarnation, broken into ten toes, would be struck by the rock Nebuchadnezzar saw, which was cut from the mountain without human hands. Daniel heard a voice telling him that these last events pertained to the time of the end and were a long ways off in Daniel's day. So Daniel couldn't help but ask the obvious question, how long? He then heard two heavenly saints speaking, and the one asked the other, how long will we have to wait until this desecration of our gospel principles, our sacraments, and our holy ordinances is over? And the other holy saint answered, and Daniel overheard it, until the completion of 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be clean again. So we're going to need to take a short tangent, and this is again where we pay homage to Isaac Newton. Ah, Sir Isaac Newton, how we started our gospel feast on the book of Daniel. Many people have been asking, how does Isaac Newton tie into this? So we're excited to get to that part uh, here soon. So we're just about out of time. I know we tend to get uh, and, and enjoy getting caught up in tangents, but uh, we need to wrap this up here. Well, fair enough, Peter. Let's save that one for a next feast, the concept of Jewish time. This can be an Eastern thinking lesson. You know I love Eastern thinking. So until our next gospel feast, we invite everyone to read along with us to enjoy the book of Daniel. You can also find the books that uh, our author and historian Reed has written to help us understand these scriptures. They can be found at gospelfeastbooks.com. Uh, if you have any questions, we can be contacted through the website or through the email address gospelfeastbooks@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We remind everyone we are not sponsored or involved or endorsed by any denomination. This is just our testimonies and our understanding of the gospel. And until our next gospel feast, we pray that the Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. Music